0: then knocked out. It's over! Mamma mia! He's done it! Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko! AJ does it in style! Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Regandau quit. It's Fiscianatos with Evan Rutkowski. He's good boy, you know. Hello, Fight Bands. It is Wednesday, May 16th. You're probably going to be listening to this on Thursday or Friday. And this is the Fistinados Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rakowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Follow me on Twitter at Pod. Email me at Fistinados at Yahoo.com. I'm happy to respond. Uh, let's. Let's review the action from the last two weeks. So Saturday, May 5th on HBO, Gennady Golovkin KO2 over Vanus Martirosian. Cecilia Brakus defeats Kaylee Reese. Um, The main event averages 1.249 million viewers with a peak of 1.361 million viewers. The undercard also did very well averaging over 900,000 viewers, peaking at over a million. Saturday, May 12th on ESPN, Vasily Lomachenko KO-10 over Jorge Linares averages 1.439 million viewers, peaking at 1.749 for the main event, and in the undercard, Carlos Adamas with a decision win over Alejandro Barrera, also that night on HBO. Jaime Munguia KO-4 over Saddam Ali. That averages 711,000 viewers, peaking at 779,000. The undercard has Ray Vargas defeat Azat Hovnisian, which averages 619,000 viewers, peaking at 740. And on this one, too, I have to do a mea culpa. I I thought the odds would be much more in the favor of Saddam Ali. And when I actually did the research on who Mungia was as a fighter, not obviously who he was. I knew him from... The Nevada Athletic Commission embarrassingly not approving him for the Golovkin fight. Um, As to what kind of fighter he was, I quickly realized that it was a much closer fight than I said on air in the last episode. So, also, just for context on May 12th, lots of competition, including UFC and Bellator fights. The UFC 224 prelims averaged 574,000 viewers. They were on FX as opposed to their usual Fox Sports 1, and the pay-per-view was out of Brazil, so usually those do much less pay-per-view buys, and the viewership for the prelims are less. Bellator had Ryan Bader's KO win over King Mo do 600,005 combined viewers, 450,000 on Paramount Network, and 152,000 on CMT, which is country music, which is weird that they do it on both, but yes get 605,000 viewers combined. So for context, that is one of the lowest ratings uh, for the UFC in a while, as I have sort of mentioned earlier. Uh, and I took this from a da- I, I have no idea where Dave Meltzer got this. I took it from a Dave Meltzer article. For Google search numbers, Lomachenko was number six. That I found interesting. Okay, so overall thoughts on all these. The Triple G number is the highest rated pay cable show. I'm sure it will be the highest uh, pay cable show of the year. There are lots of circumstances that we can talk about here. You know, The bottom line, this is a star-driven sport, and Triple G is a star who drives ratings. He hasn't fought on HBO in a while. This is a, great to have him fight on HBO. It does not take a former HBO executive to explain to you That really simple concept. You all understand it. Here's the one comment I will say. Under normal circumstances, this fight would have been promoted with a large paid media campaign behind it. A really big PR push. And the timing of all the nonsense that happened prevented a lot of that. Really what I mean by that is this rating could have been a lot higher I think that says a lot for HBO. You put on a star, you get a, a great rating like that. Speaks a lot about, it speaks more about the other television ratings that they've gotten this year, not this one. Because Triple G still gets a great rating. That's basically the bottom line. Um, other thing I want to touch on here is the purses for the fight. Golovkin the only made a million bucks. Bonus made 225, and the women fighters, I mean, their pay was pathetic. Breakhoose made like 50K. Reese made 25K. Uh, Again, it just raises a lot of questions for HBO here when you look at those numbers in the context of what they're doing. So, enough of that. Let's look at May 12th. May 12th is really an interesting evening given all the circumstances around it. First of all, you got to look at that ESPN number. And it must be said the initial reports were not good at all. The overnight rating was actually just over a million viewers. Um, I think with context, it's a little bit more digestible. The fact that it peaked at one, over 1. 1.7 million is a good sign. Combined with the fact that the start time got moved up. you know, Remember the history of this? The start time got moved up to accommodate the HBO replay which was supposed to be Canelo Golovkin but then it it didn't that not, didn't happen on Cinco de Mayo and then you know the ESPN thing had to essentially go against three other combat sport events that night so that context is important when you look at the ESPN number but i think the bottom line is they really do have to get those higher level shows like the Lomachenko shows up to that 2 million number. And the reason I say that is that's really what puts it in line with a lot of other sports on ESPN. And these are sports that ESPN just pays a lot more for. So I think if they get up to that number, you're really, you're really doing well. Um, I did see a push on regular on ESPN programming like that week and I think that was a good sign. They treated the broadcast as a major fight event. You know, that part was very impressive. Um, There, it's like there was some thought that the complimentary shows would do each other a favor. But if you look at the HBO number, that just wasn't the case. Uh, the ESPN main event, like the peak for the ESPN main event, was almost, is really more than double the HBO number. I think there's a case here that the HBO programming strategy really needs to be put under a microscope. You know, I pointed this out in the last episode that there's some bad luck in this recent stretch for HBO. But the narrative here on, on what has happened isn't good at all. Just remember with this fight, HBO was only in this weight class, and this is where I really talk about the strategy. HBO was only in this weight class because Miguel Cotto wanted to fight there, and they were even probably only able to televise his final fight because they had saved a significant amount of money for the Klitschko-Joshua rematch, which didn't happen. So they needed to spend that money at the end of 2017, and because they... They spent it on Kodo, but because they weren't invested in the 154-pound weight class, they gave Saddam Ali a chance to move up in weight and fight Kodo. So Kodo gets hurt during the fight. Ali pulls off this great upset, and credit to him for doing that. But HBO was so uninvested, so strapped in that weight class, that they had him fight a Brit who pulled out, and then we find... Jaime Mugea as this late replacement. And while it's a great story that the incompetent Nevada Athletic Commission wouldn't allow him as a Triple G opponent, you know, he comes on to national TV for the first time and wins by dominant KO, you know, wins in 154 pound belt. All the other belts are held by Showtime fighters right now, and almost all the top 10 fighters are Showtime fighters. So, Even when HBO gets a potential star on their hands, they don't really have an effective way of developing him. And if I was him, I would leave for another platform. So I think that's just one example of some of the strategy that really needs to be examined here. But I'll leave that for another. That is a deep dive almost in and of itself. The deep dive I wanted to get into this week is the UFC's ESPN deal. What it means for boxing, what it means for combat sports in general, and what I'm going to do—I'm actually going to be on vacation in two weeks, so I'm going to come back next week and talk about the the zone deal that Eddie Hearn made. I think these are really these are interrelated subjects. They're basically it's a part one and part two, and they mean a lot, and they're they, they mean a lot together. They deserve their own. Deep dives, though. There's a lot to unpack with both of them. Before I get to that, though, there's two things I wanted to touch on from last episode that I probably could have done a better job explaining in the Q&A. First of all, uh, part of the reason I came in low on the Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder pay-per-view fight number for that, or what most people considered low, was when, when they don't have a huge crossover star, like I mentioned, and I think I covered that part, you need a strategy to court the Hispanic fan base in a major way, since neither fighter is Hispanic, and right now, especially when there's not a big crossover star, that's a huge element to getting a big pay-per-view number. You know, I don't want to harp on that too much. It is a consideration, though, and and it's something that they would have had to, if you're making that fight right now, you have to come up with a big-time strategy for that. Uh, the second. When I was talking about what happens from a network perspective when a fight gets made, I essentially left out a part of the, the probably is actually what most of you people were wondering about. You know, HBO has a matchmaker in house that is constantly on the phone with promoters, managers, etc., trying to put together fight cards on a budget given by the head of the department. You know, historically, this person is like a high profile department member. Very outward facing. It's like a Ludovilla, Carrie Davis, Peter Nelson. Like these, these guys have all held the position, and it's usually with some people under them. They're usually in constant contact with the production team, the marketing group, uh, all kinds of you know social media, and that part is just so it, it it's so intrinsic to me. I didn't even think to mention it, but I but that's a really important part about how a fight gets made. It's it's that once Those guys are the ones who actually agree to who is actually fighting who uh, from the programming perspective. And then once they get that part done, everyone else goes ahead. And that's really the HBO machine that has worked so well for so many years. But let's go back. Let's do the real deep dive. Let's look at that ESPN Plus deal that the UFC signed about two weeks ago at this point. There has already been some good analysis that's been done, especially in the MMA media, on what this means for the UFC going forward, what it means for the sport on the whole, viewership, etc. The deal that got done is basically $150 million a year for five years, and it's going to be 15 fights, it's going to be the UFC... Uh, library. Which essentially, if you subscribe to Fight Pass, it's going to be that. And it's some other ancillary programming that hasn't fully been articulated yet. What is staggering here? Well, to me, first of all, this number is about right. But to most of the people in the MMA media and the boxing media, which is, I think, where we really need to hit on here, this number was staggering. Um, most people thought espn massively overpaid and that when mma goes to the espn plus platform it's going to lose a lot of viewers you know the espn the espn plus platform kind of the narrative is it basically if you go there right now it kind of sucks and what does this mean for fight pass all this kind of stuff here's my what I think is going to end up being a hot take, might even be a scalding hot take based on what I've heard so far. I think ESPN will end up looking like they made a great deal by year four of this. And wherever this is also, this was their digital deal. They still have yet to make their TV deal. Their TV deal was about for $150 million a year. They're expecting to get much more than that. And, I actually think when wherever their TV deal ends up, and my bet would be Fox right now. I think if Fox really wanted to get to Fox, what they should do is get the WWE and you know MMA, the UFC. They should redo that deal and put them together. I think it's complementary audiences. They could probably do it with boxing as well, but it's tough with the PBC. They're not putting on very high-level shows for Big Fox right now. But they should do some combination. Spike actually tried it for a little bit, not to major success, but I don't think they crossed uh, platforms that well, or sorry, crossed audiences that well. But anyways, I think that wherever their TV deal ends up, they're going to, if it's Fox, they're going to overpay for that. And people thought that WME, William Morris Endeavor Agency, Owns the UFC. Most people thought that the WME they way overpaid for it. They paid over four billion dollars, and I've been one of the few people saying that that's just simply not the case. Uh, I think Ari Emanuel, Lance Klein, WME—they're setting the template right now for how to make a sports right, a sports rights deal by splitting the product into a digital package and a traditional TV package in a really smart segmented way with exclusive content for each. This deal it probably means that they got significant value in the deal. And why I'm getting into all of this right now is because when you look at this from the perspective of the sport of boxing, wow. If promoters can really pull it together, and figure out how to act in everyone's best interests, they can make so much more money. There is a case to be made that ESPN is getting really similar content from Top Rank as they are from the UFC for this. I mean, we don't totally know what the UFC's deal is, but it's library deals for both, and they're paying the UFC somewhere between three and five times as much as they're paying Top Rank. Now, we don't really know what number that is because I I have a feeling Top Rank got paid more money when the ESPN Plus portion of the Top Rank package came out. And and there's some ancillary evidence to that. Terrence Crawford, per reports, is making a career-high payday by fighting on ESPN Plus. Um, And I've always said that Top Rank deserves massive amounts of credit for sort of breaking the seal and being the first promotional outfit to sign a deal like this in quite a while and get treated like a real league I know there's parts that the, the the PBC can take credit for but that was a time buy and they were not treated like a real league but if you think if you just sit there and think God, what if Golden Boy and Top Rank and the PBC negotiated together to get a deal on ESPN how much more money could they have made I mean that's crazy you know Every major sport in the U.S. has had to figure this out at some point, and when they have done so, it has led to massive financial and leverage gains. No matter what the case, you know, early days of the NFL, they got to figure it out. They got to consolidate the sport, come up with real structure. ESPN's latest deal with the NFL was for 1.9 billion a year, and I think the highlight packages alone. Out of that 1.9 billion was two to three times what the what ESPN is paying the UFC for this digital package. You know, it also must be noted that in a world where most traditional and TV, like most traditional TV and movies, are essentially losing viewership, sports rights are continuing to increase in value. Now and then, when you factor in, I don't think this will have a huge immediate effect when you factor in this new gaming decision that legalizes gambling it probably makes the product more valuable it's going to end up increasing engagement and potentially opening up another revenue stream for leagues that really you know if they promote the gaming aspect of it they and Adam Silver has basically already said he's going to do that with the NBA that's a huge other revenue stream you know top ranks contract is small potatoes, comparatively speaking, to that. And I don't want to wander too far away from talking about ESPN Plus here, but I think some of this context is necessary when you're analyzing the deal here. What people don't understand is that ESPN Plus, it's in its complete nascent stages here, but in 10 years, ESPN Plus will likely just be ESPN the entire service might actually just be an OTT streaming product. Even if it's not completely an OTT product, the way that cable numbers are dropping right now, ESPN will be in significantly less households by the end of this contract. The episode I did a while back talking about the battle between Disney and Netflix is really something to refer to here. I encourage you to listen to that if you haven't. The strategy here isn't just to see if ESPN Plus is a new potential source of revenue for Disney. They realize that starting with millennials, and especially the generations that come after millennials, cable subscriptions won't exist. It's all going to be an OTT service. The generation of people who are teenagers right now are likely never going to have their name on a cable bill. As paying customers, they will only know ESPN Plus, or whatever it's called in the future, as it. That's what the, They just know that as what they get. So ESPN, they're racing to put content on there. And if you're a professional sport, you want to be first, even if it means a short-term drop in viewership. So yes, the boxing and UFC that happens behind what most people right now especially cable subscribers consider to be an added paywall the viewership might go down in the beginning and i've talked about this before but in the long run you want to be first there and if you're first there and you adapt well your viewership in the long term should go up so no i don't think espn overpaid at all for the ufc digital contract Whoever gets the TV contract will likely find out that in year four or five of the contract they're about to sign, they're in less households, and they're overpaying, and they're not able to, to make the margin that they hope to make. The other thing, this isn't about the economics of what ESPN Plus is right now. It's really easy to do some basic math and say, okay, they're doing 15 events at $150 million a year, and that's $10 an event, which is really good. Wow. But this is about a lot more than that. Sports rights are difficult to put on any platform, especially an OTT platform, because the leagues, they all make the deals for several years at a time. Like, this deal is for five years, and that's relatively short. And it's hard to find new properties to fill a platform with programming. This is why both Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2 would barely exist without the UFC. I think... I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before. I think in 2017, the UFC made up something like thir- over 30 percent. It might even have been as high as 38 percent of all programming tonnage that happened on Fox Sports One. ESPN Plus just needs to fill its platform with programming, and the library portion of this deal, and the other, the ancillary portion of this deal that's extensive and, and it's really important. And the other thing I want to emphasize here, I've talked about it a little bit in the past, but I'm going to break it down a little bit further as to why here. So, as more sports come to the service, I promise you that you'll pay more than 499 a month for it, and I also think you'll see commercials on it. We don't think of OTT services as having commercials right now because Netflix and you know Netflix doesn't have them, but they are coming. And, you know, I don't know when they're happening, but I promise you both of these things will happen, the price increase and the commercials. Here's what I'm talking about, the commercials. So we're eventually going to get to the point where, like I said earlier, ESPN Plus will just be ESPN. And when there's a quote unquote commercial break, it won't be a uniform ad that everyone across the country sees. It's going to be personalized for the individual users based on their profile and viewing habits. With the first-party data that having an OTT platform will provide, it means you can truly maximize your ad inventory. And what I mean by that is right now when you watch an ad on ESPN, if you have a cable subscription, ESPN doesn't actually know what you're watching on a one-to-one basis. Your cable provider knows what you're watching. But when you're OTT, ESPN has a direct relationship with you the consumer they know exactly who you are so here's here's the way to think about how you can maximize your ad inventory let's say you're an advertiser and you want to buy a commercial for an NBA game right now during the playoffs you want access to that audience but instead of paying the high rates for a national commercial which is hundreds of thousands of dollars you can personalize your ad for a small percentage of the viewers that have certain audience it. It's, it's more expensive on the basis of, of a per individual, but you can only choose to spend maybe 25 or 50K and hit a really targeted group of viewers. If you're Disney, you do this and maximize the revenue you get during an ad break. So I'm just throwing this number out here because it's an, it's an easy round number. Instead of maybe you get $100,000 for a 30 second ad spot that everyone across the country sees But maybe from an advertiser standpoint, well, I want that big audience, but only 50, 60, 70% of the people actually might qualify as someone who cares about what I'm advertising for. You can personalize that ad for every single viewer. Like you can get that number much closer to 100%. Advertisers, on the whole, and I'm one of them. They're willing to pay a much higher CPM, which is essentially that cost per person, that cost per individual who gets delivered the ad, if you know that you're eliminating that wasted percentage of people who are less likely to care about your ad. That $100,000 could easily turn into 125 dollars dollars maybe even $200,000 if you nail this part down and you get it right. So there's a lot of money on the table for that, and that OTT platform provides a much deeper understanding of who you're advertising to. Disney as a whole needs to figure this out. And given their history, I think they're a great bet to do so. So look, in summary here, I think ESPN did not overpay ESPN+. Plus, I think the UFC owners made a very smart deal which will end up being mutually beneficial for both parties, though it may not look like that in the first year or so. I think WME is likely going to come out of this TV contract negotiation feeling very good about the price they paid for the UFC. And most importantly of all, I think boxing promoters need to take note. Look at how much leverage the UFC had to make this deal because they are clearly the top MMA promotion out there. And they acted uniformly, basically, in what's best for them. What if boxing had a better structure where the sport could exact this kind of leverage? Like, what if the WBS, uh, SS, the World Boxing Super Series, truly had the leverage with the best fighters in the division to make an American TV deal like this? You know, what if the PBC... God, what if the PBC actually got it right? Like, what if they behaved more like the NBA or the NFL and they forced their best fighters to consistently fight each other and they created some real brand equity early on when they did their time buy? What if Top Rank partnered with Golden Boy? Like I said above, one, you know, just, God, what if they did it with the PBC and Golden Boy? What if they did it with another promoter? What if they were able to do what Eddie Hearn is doing? That's the $100 million question. And like I said from the top, I'm going to dive into that next week because these topics are so closely related. I think you have to look at the ESPN UFC digital deal first, though. So this is part one of two of the deep dive. The preview, I'm going to preview One Night of Fights you know, actually there there's some good fights on May nineteenth, and then we kind of get we have a, a lesser fight on ESPN plus on the twenty-sixth, and there's kind of a week off after that. So I'm gonna preview this weekend's fights right now on Showtime. I'll do the ones after that uh, next week in the next episode. Showtime has a split site doubleheader featuring Adonna Stevenson. And Badu Jack for Stevenson's lineal and WBC light heavyweight title. Stevenson started out as almost a two to one favorite, and the odds on this fight—they're basically even odds right now. I think Stevenson is a very marginal favorite, maybe like minus one forty or something like that. We've also got Gary Russell Jr. and Jojo Diaz fighting for Russell's WBC featherweight title, and Russell's like a three or four to one favorite, depending on where you look. I think another thing to note, Showtime on the YouTube and Facebook, they're streaming the Lee Selby-Josh Warrington fight. Maybe more on that next week. Um, Showtime is doing a great job with this. I hope they continue. I love what they're doing here. So let's talk about each of these fights for a second because... This night is likely going to be one of the most competitive, high-level nights of fighting that we're going to see on premium cable this year, and I give Showtime an immense amount of credit for putting it on. I also feel, in the same breath as saying that, that each of these fights, they encapsulate a certain fan frustration with how Al Heyman has run the PVC and what he's allowed a lot of his fighters to do with their careers. I also, it, it's tough because I feel like a lot of the drama of the last two weeks has taken some of the air out of these fights and we haven't really seen it promoted or pushed hard enough. And hopefully that changes because they're great fights. And despite all the frustrations from the past, they deserve to be propped up. They, they really do. At 175, you know, I just think most fans want Stevenson to stop holding his belt hostage. You know, I've been over this before, but the list of defenses he's had is embarrassing, and the PBC should really be ashamed of themselves for the way they promoted him. He had a real opportunity to make a fight with Bernard Hopkins or Kovalev, or even both, and be the true kingpin at 175 pounds. And he didn't do that, which is really frustrating. But I think what is inexcusable... What is inexcusable is that he also had a chance to just be a big draw in Montreal the way Lucien Boutet or Jean Pascal were, and instead of trying to do that, he's just fought a list of opponents who've done so little for his career. And personally, I really get frustrated when a fighter has an opportunity to pursue greatness and then just chooses a much easier path. And by saying that, I'm not saying you can't take an easy fight from time to time. But the way you become a star in this business is by combining talent, marketability, fight style, and then maybe most importantly, a list of significant opponents that can naturally raise your profile. And Adonis Stevenson more than had the opportunity to do that. He just looked the other way. So obviously, I'm on a personal level rooting for Badu Jack here. I hope Jack will win, and then I hope he'll look for opportunities to unify or, at the very least, take on significant challenges. Uh, There's a lot of great – that's a great division to be in. There's a lot of great fights to be made. I've been over this, you know, maybe a couple months ago at this point. But he's got a great opportunity. Whoever wins – if Stevenson wins this, he technically has a great opportunity. I think we've seen him pass on that before. But Badu Jack, if he wins, has a great opportunity. Gary Russell Jr., he's probably the other poster boy for the downside of being an Al Haman fighter. His career's just been maligned by inactivity and improper promotion. I think it's really good to see him fighting in the DC area again this weekend, but this is the kind of stuff we should have seen him been doing for a long time, given the kind of talent he has. You know, the other thing with him is besides Lomachenko, his list of opponents is downright awful. This is a weight class that Again, it's it's like I'm saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, it's basically mirroring Stevenson. This way, class should have afforded him numerous opportunities to make big fights. And even though he's the betting favorite against JoJo Diaz, Diaz is a real live dog here. And he could easily pull off the upset, which is something I never thought I'd be saying when you look at their pure talent levels. Gary Russell Jr., has a lot more talent than Jojo Diaz and Jojo Diaz can definitely beat him this weekend. In a lot of ways, I hope he does. I, I, Jojo Diaz is, is a great kid. I worked with him a little bit. I, I've taken him around on radio row. He, I, I root for him. I don't know what, I don't know if he truly has that, that exceptional talent level to, you know, he certainly doesn't have the power, but this fight is going to really tell us where he is in terms of talent level, I'm not sure he has it. I hope he does. I hope he beats Gary Russell Jr. You know, and I think a lot of fight fans feel the same way. It's like for for such a great night of fights, if if the <laughs> if the fighters that were being featured here weren't so frustrating, it, I feel like it'd be a much bigger deal. But it's not, and it's mostly it's all on them. It's all their own fault. So this has been fun. Like I said. I'll be back next week. I'll do a shorter preview for what's happening on the 26th, and then I'll be off on vacation and then come back. We have a good month of June to start out, so there'll be some bigger fights to preview for that. But look, guys, enjoy this one this weekend. Have a good time. I will talk to you guys next week. Did you get what you was looking for?